0: go ahead and take your seat and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. Uh, We're going to finish off Romans 15 together this afternoon. And uh, it it really is, in in many ways, the conclusion of this letter, the second half of chapter 15 and all the way through chapter 16, we see Paul concluding this, this masterful letter that he's written to the Roman church that is so filled with the depths and riches and wonders of the gospel. That's what the book of Romans is. It it is an exposition of the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as Paul concludes, he concludes this book on talking about his own ministry, his own gospel ministry, the things that the Lord has called him to, the things that he has accomplished, for the Lord, and what He desires to accomplish. I had the opportunity this morning to be in New Market, and I was able to preach um, the the installation message for Miles. He is officially, as of this morning, the senior pastor of Redemption New Market, and it was just such a wonderful time being there and celebrating the faithfulness and kindness of God and I was thinking as, as it pertains to this text, thinking about Miles and the eight years that he was here and how in many ways he fulfilled his ministry here. He was faithful in what the Lord had given to him and he, he did it well to the glory of God. And, and now as of this morning, he's transitioning into a, a new ministry over there and God has called him to be faithful there as he was faithful here. And as we look at this text... What we see is that Paul has fulfilled his ministry in the Eastern Empire. He's done everything that the Lord had called him to do there, and he has proclaimed the gospel, as we saw last week, there. He has established churches from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. He has fulfilled this ministry, he says. But what I want you to notice in our text today is that though he has fulfilled that ministry, he has not finished the ministry. For Paul, there is always ministry to be done. And now he's making plans for further ministry, and that's what he's beginning to unpack and unfold in these final verses of chapter 15. And from these plans, what we see, what I want us to see and embrace is what Paul models for us, and that's this. It is a ministry mindset. It's a ministry mindset that that really, it overwhelmed the life of Paul It controlled his every thought, his every action. And that's important for us to see and grasp because for the Christian, listen, the job is never done. I mean, the job is done, but, but you'll know when that day comes, okay? You will be in the presence of the Lord You will be singing His praise for all eternity, but until that day comes, the Scriptures tell us the job of the Christian is never done. There is a great commission. There is a mission that God has given to the church to fulfill, and that means this, that regardless of the way the ministry looks at a particular point in time or season in life, the ministry mindset is something that needs to grip the heart of every single Christian, the job is never done. We, we never punch the clock, so to speak. We have all been given this great ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yes, our ministries will and do look different from the Apostle Paul, but God has, make no mistake about it, entrusted to each one of you and to us as a church, the ministry of the gospel. Ministry isn't a job we go to. It is a mindset we always carry with us. Paul teaches us three important principles for living with a ministry mindset as we look at this text. I want to read it for us, so let's pick up where we left off. Let's look at verse 22. We'll read to the end of the chapter. Paul says, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you... I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. we see here, just so undeniably, the ministry mindset of Paul. And I want to look at three principles here that will help us grasp this same ministry mindset. The ministry mindset pushes me to first serve in strategic partnership. Paul, when he thought about his life in ministry, he, he always thought about different relationships in his life, He was always building relationships and he was doing so very intentionally, very strategically. You'll notice in verse 22, he says, this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. We're reminded that Paul wanted to go and visit these believers. Remember, he didn't plant this church. Paul had never been to this church. He clearly had some relationships in this church and there was a part of him that wanted to, to go to them, to be with them, to develop relationships with them. Up to this point in time, he had been hindered from doing so. What, what hindered Paul from going and enjoying a fellowship and relationships with the Roman church? You want to know what it was? It was what he's talked about in the previous section. It was his ministry of preaching the gospel to the Eastern Empire. It was the calling that God had placed on his life. He had a, a priority to go to the nations with the gospel. He was always, in other words, thinking about ministry. And again, yes, ministry takes different forms and shapes and different seasons, but ministry was always on his heart. It was always on his mind. Paul saw the help of gospel friendships as vital, a vital part of his own success in ministry. He never viewed his ministry just about him, what he had accomplished for the Lord. He always realized there was a team of people that worked with him and beside him and behind him. Though his gospel ministry had prevented him from getting to Rome, we see here his genuine love for people, the people, the believers in Rome. And I think this expresses, from the heart of Paul, a genuine need for people in his life. These are the kind of relationships that helped him thrive and excel in the Christian life and in the Christian ministry. There's three things to take note of here when it comes to Paul's thoughts towards these believers. You'll notice here that Paul, first, he longed to come to them. Secondly, he hoped, he says, to see them in passing. And he wanted, thirdly here, to enjoy their company for a while. He wanted to come and be a blessing to them, he says later on in this passage. He believed, yes, that that they would be a blessing to him, but he knew that when he came, the kind of spiritual friendship and partnership that they would enjoy would be a a massive blessing to their spiritual lives and to the spiritual thriving of the church in Rome. He longed to be in fellowship with them. I, I think this is really a byproduct of the work of the gospel in the heart of a believer, the longing to be in fellowship with other believers is actually the, the mark of a Christian. It's the mark of the presence of the Spirit of God. And if you don't believe me, just go read 1 John. 1 John is filled with references that teach us that, that the believers, the brothers, they love other believers. They want to be with other believers because they see the, the blessing and benefit of being a part of the family of God. We share a family bond. This is why Christians are... are often um, even though maybe they've never met each other when they when they meet for the first time they're almost like long-lost friends who are having a bit of a reunion I mean I experienced that this morning in Newmarket people that yes some of them I knew some of them I've heard about but it, but it was like being with family it was like instantly we have this bond in Christ and we we love each other and we care for each other and we want to be with each other I experienced the same thing every time I go overseas and do ministry we were just in Romania and I remember being in Nepal and it didn't matter. It was just like in moments, because, listen, because of what we have in common in the gospel, it didn't matter what we did not have in common. I mean, culture, differences in, in, in economic status. I mean, nothing mattered because the gospel is what we loved most and what knit our hearts together. Paul was busy. He was busy in ministry, but here's what I want you to see, because many of us are busy, but Paul prioritized time for relationships, in the busyness of life, don't miss out on the blessings of friendships. We, we live in a culture that is, is so disconnected from, with, from one another. We're so busy and we connect in such superficial ways. Having meaningful, deep, intimate friendship and, and relationship in the gospel is often very challenging and very elusive. Some of you, you know this personally. You just, you just have no real close friendships. Nothing, nothing that is truly meaningful Some of you, the reason is not that you're just too busy, it's because you've been hurt badly. You you risked relationships in the past, and it's come around to, to bite you. You gave yourself over in a relationship, you were vulnerable, you were transparent. And, and then you were hurt deeply. Maybe you were betrayed by somebody, somebody that you had invested in and poured your life into. They turned your back on you, and that's incredibly painful. And for some of you, it's made it very hard to, to move back into relationship, to truly trust people again, and to do what God is calling you to do, and enjoy what God wants you to enjoy. But again, I want you to see the benefits of these kinds of friendships I love how he, he, he says there in verse 24, he says he hopes to see them in passing. He wants to be helped on his journey. But look at this. I love this. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while. You see, Paul's ministry mindset was, was eventually to get to Spain. But notice, he's like, look, I, I want to take a pit stop. I want to spend some time with you. And, and I, don't, I don't just want to kind of take from you. I want to enjoy being with you. Biblically, relationships are important because they they produce enjoyment. They produce the kind of encouragement for our souls that we all long for, that we all desperately are designed for. God has made us for relationships. He's made us first and foremost for a relationship with Himself. Our God is a triune God. He exists eternally in relationship. And we, as his creation, uh, the pinnacle of his creation, human beings are made in that very image to know and enjoy not only relationship with him, but relationship with one another. But notice that, that though Paul sees the enjoyment in these relationships, he also understands that these kind of relationships will make him more efficient with this ministry goal and ministry mindset. These were real friendships that Paul enjoyed, but I want you to see that they were also strategic partnerships. Paul understood the value of these partnerships, and here we find Paul making plans to complete a plan that he had been working on for years. Paul strategically wanted to get the gospel all the way uh, to Spain. For years he had planned to come and, and visit Rome, but up to this point he had not been able to. We see here in this restatement of his plan, a snapshot of his long-term goal, his desire for the church in Rome, and, and ultimately the partnership that he desires to have with them, that they would help him on his way towards delivering the gospel to Spain. And some of you are like, well, I sure, I'd love to bring the gospel to Spain too. It's beautiful there. Well, not in Paul's day it wasn't. In Paul's day, it was run down. It was not a nice place to go. It's not like a holiday. This is a hard ministry that Paul was going into, but he knew. He knew what God was calling him to, and he had a burden on his heart to take the gospel to these unreached people, to places where the gospel had never gone before. When he talks here about them, Helping him on his way to journey, this idea of assistance that they would provide, this means more than simply them offering good wishes or or even a parting prayer. What Paul is pointing to here is meaningful partnership, it is holistic in nature. Now, listen, we live in in a cutthroat world, and in a lot of sectors of society, people use people to get themselves ahead. Some of you have experienced this relationships are a means to an end. They're they're utilitarian in nature. They simply are there in order for me to get further ahead in my life, in my goals, in my objectives, in my dreams, with my desires. You are there to promote me, to further me. That's often the way it works in the world But one of the things you need to see here is that that's not what Paul is doing. Paul is not using the believers in Rome to help him accomplish some kind of self-serving goal. He's already made it very clear that anything the Lord has accomplished in his life, his desire is to boast only in Christ. Look what God has done. No, Paul was involving them in the priority of the church in reaching all nations with the gospel. One of the reasons I love being... In uh, the network of churches we're in, the Great Commission Collective, is because this is the very heart of the the network. We want to partner together. We want to link arms together with other like-minded Christians. We want to share in resources and support and put our heads together for strategic thinking and planning because we want to see collectively the gospel go further than we could ever, listen, than we could ever do alone. This is one of the reasons that God gives us relationships, partnerships in both life and ministry, because you can do way more with others than you could ever possibly do alone. This is why it's, it's so important to, to choose wisely the kind of people you surround yourself with. When you think about strategic partnerships in your own life, this is where I'm going to boil this down from a church level. Listen, as we have strategic partners as a church, you as an individual need to think strategically about the kind of relationships you have in your life. I've heard it said, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. That's that's absolutely true. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Jesus kind of said this, didn't he? He said this. He said, bad company corrupts good character. Show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. Show me who you hang around, and I'll tell you with a a high degree of probability what your future is going to look like, the kind of person you're going to be, the kind of things you're going to do. I can tell you. Parents, you watch this all the time, don't you? You see this. It's it's easy to see from a parental level when you watch your kids and the kids they hang around and how the influence, it just happens organically. They, They rub off on each other. What's harder to see is how that's happening in your own life. And it's not just the negative. That's why I framed it here. I want to frame this in the positive. Listen, bad company corrupts good character. That implies something else really awesome, doesn't it? Good company, in other words, helps produce and cultivate good character. You see, there's strategic relationships that you need to go after in your life. There's relationships in your life that you need to cut off, you need to get away from, that does not include your spouse, But there's some people that maybe you're surrounding yourself with that simply are are not having any good impact on your life, and in fact, they're pulling you down and away from the Lord. Some of you just need to be tenacious about pursuing godly people to hang around, godly friendships. I want to encourage you to find those friends, but I want to also encourage you to be that friend. Be the kind of friend that pours in spiritually, that builds up and edifies and encourages in the Lord. You see, the ministry mindset pushes us to serve in strategic partnerships, to see how God gives relationships to further not only our spiritual life, but to advance the very gospel of Jesus Christ that has so radically changed our lives. Next, the ministry mindset pushes me to share in sacrificial provision. We see in verses 25 through 29 Really the heart of this help that they were providing for Paul, but also the help of the other churches for other struggling churches. The help that the church was to provide for Paul, like I said, was holistic. It was, it was beyond prayer or well wishes. It was provision in all kinds of ways in financial and people. In fact, this, this word that Paul uses, it often indicates a, a group of people that would be sent along to partner in ministry. Paul's desire to go to Spain is also one that is going to be sacrificial. And you'll notice that he, he describes, yes, this desire to go to Spain, but then he says, "At present, however, in verse 25, I'm going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints." See why is that? Well, here's why. For Macedonia and Nicaea, uh, those are two cities with churches there, they have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. And then not only that, they were pleased to do what he says, and indeed they owe it to them, for the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings. They also ought to be of service to them in material blessings. He says this in verse 28, when therefore I have completed this and have delivered uh, to them what has been collected, I will then leave for Spain by way of you. I want you to see that that Paul is, is upholding some churches who are giving sacrificially. He's expecting the church in Rome to sacrificially support him and aid him. But Paul is not calling these churches or these believers to do anything he's not willing to do himself. Paul has sacrificed so much of his life for the sake of the ministry. And right here we get another glimpse of that as we understand a little bit of what Paul is actually saying here. You see, if Paul had had done what he had wanted to do initially, he would have immediately set sail for Rome. However, he, he first had to take this offering to the poor in the Jerusalem church, which he had collected from those Gentile churches in Macedonia and Achaia. And you see, what, what we see here is that Paul's servant heart was about to cost him in both known and unknown ways, and, and ways that he was not expecting and in ways, though, that he, he did expect. This always happens when you're doing ministry. If, if any of you have done overseas ministry, you know for sure that there's a cost, there's a toll uh, that it often takes, that, that some of it, yes, you expected, some of it you did not expect. Some of them are big, some of them are small. Rowan and I just came back from Romania, and, uh, and initially we had booked the shortest flight we could possibly get over there. We were gonna be over there in 13 hours, which is pretty good. We only had a couple of flights to catch, a couple layovers. Well, all it takes is one delayed flight, right, which is what happened, for us to miss a flight. And then we got there in 23 hours instead of 13 hours. And then our bags didn't show up. And so we had to wait the next day to get some clean clothes, which is nasty. This is such a small... I mean, do we expect that? No. Were we prepared for that? now? Yeah, maybe. But that is such a minor inconvenience. Listen, here's why I'm saying this. It's such a small thing. It's actually not a sacrifice at all, especially when you put it in, in perspective, considering what Paul has sacrificed here. You see, he had gone... If he had gone straight from Corinth to Spain, the trip would have been approximately 1,500 Miles. Miles. But for the good of the saints in Jerusalem, listen to this, and the unity of the church, he doubled the length of his journey. And in an age of of, uh, airplane travel, that doesn't seem like much. But in the days of Paul, traveling on foot and taking boats, we're talking weeks and months he added to his journey. You see, why did he do this? This is how you get into the ministry mindset of Paul. His motivation here is primarily theological. You see, let me kind of break down the situation for you a little bit. The church in Jerusalem is a predominantly Jewish church, the churches in Macedonia and Achaia are predominantly Gentile churches. And Paul's been telling us that even though God's made these covenant promises to Israel, Israel failed to keep covenant with God. But where they failed, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to fulfill those promises which are now not only made available to Israel, but also to all the Gentiles throughout all the world. Paul's gone to great lengths already in this letter to tell us that we have been as Gentiles grafted in to those incredible promises. And yet, in the, the church back in Paul's day, there was still this tension that existed between the, the Jewish and the Gentile believers. So, Paul is is deeply concerned that the Gentiles give and that the Jews receive this offering. This is important to Paul. You say, why is this so important? Because it communicated that the Gentiles properly understood the gospel, and it communicated that the Jews properly understood the gospel. It's a theological motivation. It communicated that the Gentiles understood the gospel because they were saying, in effect, listen, we, didn't, we don't deserve this. We don't deserve this grace. We don't deserve these promises. We understand that God has been gracious with us to graft us into these promises that were once made to the nation of Israel. We understand that God has been kind to us. We don't deserve any of this. We want to be generous because we understand, listen, there's the theological principle here. We want to be generous because we understand that God has been generous to us. We want to be gracious because we understand that God has been gracious to us. You see, it was generosity at work in their hearts. That's why they they wanted to give this gift to this struggling Jewish church. We We don't know why exactly the Jewish church was struggling the way they were, but we know this. They were in some kind of situation. Maybe it was famine. Maybe there was persecution. There was immense poverty taking place in the lives of the believers. And the church was struggling. And these Gentile Christians, they hear about this, and they say, listen, I want to bless these brothers and sisters in Christ, and we owe it to them because they're Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. What do you mean we owe it to them? Well, Paul had made it clear already that the Gentiles, again, were grafted into this. They didn't deserve it. All of these promises were first given to the Jews and it's, it's like the Gentiles, they grasp the gospel, they get it, and they're saying, listen, I know, I know that we are the recipients of these spiritual promises made to Israel, we have been brought in, and, and we, the least we can do is now give them, because of the spiritual blessings we have received." Now, by the way, the gospel came first from Jerusalem, and it spread out to the Gentile world, and so they're saying, listen, the least we can do now, because of the spiritual blessings we received from them, is to give to them, to bless them, physically, financially. Paul made it clear to the church in Corinth, by the way, that he was not commanding them to give, but giving them an opportunity to respond to the grace of God in Christ. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, you can flip there, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, turn in your Bibles just a a couple books forward. He gives a bit of a commentary on, on this situation, this exact situation. And listen to what he says, beginning in verse 1, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. He goes on to root this further in the gospel. Look at verse 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So here we have this picture of these Gentile churches who are also in poverty, and and they're begging Paul, because they, they understand the gospel. They're begging Paul for the opportunity to provide. Paul's like, listen, I think I've got enough. Think we took up a little special offer and we're fine. And they're like, no, Paul, we, we, we need to give more. Can't take this too. He's like, no, everything's fine. They're like, take it, Paul. He's like, okay. Like they, just, they just can't help themselves. They, they so desperately want to be involved in this act of service. We, we see here, by the way, a distinction in some ways between godly giving versus ungodly giving. It's possible. To give to the Lord and give to others in an ungodly way. It's possible to give in a self serving way to promote yourself. It's also possible to give in a begrudging way. You know, like, you're like, yeah, you're going to click that button to give to the church. And you're like, ah, I really don't want to, but I know I have to. There's obligation, but there's no joy. But godly giving sees a pairing between. And these two things aren't in conflict or in competition with one another. They see a pairing between joy and obligation. There is duty and delight. Those two things are not mutually exclusive in the Christian life. In in actuality, listen, you can actually love what you ought to do. That's the position of the Christian. Let me put it to you in, in a sentence, if I could sum this up. Grace and gratitude guide our generosity in giving. It's a lot of G's. Grace and gratitude guide our generosity in giving. So let me ask you as we we think about this, as you think about the gospel in your life, is this the way you give of yourself to the Lord? Is this the way you give your time to the Lord and to others? Is this the way you give of your talents and your gifts? Is this the way you give financially to the work of the Lord to support the work of the gospel going out? The book of Acts tells us that things did not go as Paul planned. He did deliver the offering with great success. The Jews accepted it, which, by the way, meant that they understood the gospel as well. If they rejected it, there could have been this sense of scorn. Like, we don't want Gentile money. We don't need Gentile help. But in accepting it, you want to know what they were saying? There are brothers and sisters in Christ, too. There's one new man that God is, is building up in this church. Paul delivered this offering, great success, but there was more cost, more sacrifice involved for him than he expected. He was almost killed by an unruly mob. He escaped by night with Caesar's soldiers. Then he underwent shipwreck and deprivation before arriving in chains in Rome. Paul would eventually get to Rome, but he would not come as a traveler. He'd come as a prisoner. We actually don't know if he ever made it to Spain. Part of sharing in sacrificial provision is seeing that like Paul, listen, we should remember that God's ways aren't our ways. That we make plans, but the Lord directs our steps. Sometimes we think we've got, we've got life, maybe we've got even ministry all figured out, and God comes along and He throws us a curveball and He says, it's not going to look the way you think. It's not going to happen the way you think it's going to happen. It's not going to go the way you planned. But one of the things we see in this, listen, is that that's actually okay. That's not a mark of God's unfaithfulness or, or, or a sign that God doesn't care. Oftentimes, it's a sign that God is is simply doing things that we cannot see, even though we cannot understand. This is so critical because I think many of us serve God with a mindset that, that believes if I serve God, if I just give myself to God, then that means He's going to bless me a particular way. And, and that means that, that when, when things don't go our way, it can reveal the heart of our service to the Lord. It can reveal not a ministry mindset, but a selfish mindset. It can reveal that we believe God exists to actually serve us, to do things the way that, that we want. And so, so maybe you're going along, and, and you think life is going the way it should, and you're serving the Lord. You're giving yourself to Him, and, and you're surrendering everything to Him. And then all of a sudden, some kind of obstacle comes up. Maybe it's it's an illness or an accident, or or maybe just God just blows up something in your life that you were not expecting, and then you look at it and go, God, God, what's going I thought you loved me. I, I, I thought you cared for me. I was serving you, God, and can you not hear in that, God, God, if I am going to serve you, that means you owe me. There's no bartering with God. It's not not like, you can't just say like, okay, God, I'll follow you. I hear this all the time. I've heard people say like, I'll follow God if he does this for me. That's not the way this works. It's not like God's sitting up there in heaven going like, like you're bartering with you and you're like, okay, God, I'll give you this if you give me that. Like God's like, ooh, what a good deal. He he didn't need you. He doesn't need what you have to offer. It's a privilege that God would take you and me, wretched sinners, saved only by grace, and that God would ever choose to use us to advance His glory and His gospel. That's a miracle. And anything we get to do for the Lord, listen, we have to thank the Lord. We have to praise Him. None of it's deserved. Some of you are angry with God right now because your life isn't going the way you thought. You thought following Christ was going to be easy. You thought it was going to mean everything in your life was just going to just magically get better. And instead, you found that actually life has got harder and you're angry with God. And, And here's what I need to say to you. Listen, God is working in ways you cannot see, ways you do not understand. And though it's painful, listen, though it's hard, God knows what He's doing even if you think He doesn't. And the obstacle that he's placed in your life is, is, is listen, it's simply an opportunity to serve God in different ways, to let God refine you and change you and transform you in, in ways that you you didn't realize were possible and ways you didn't realize you needed. And, and then God, God can redirect your, your life so that your ministry not only looks different, it actually becomes better because of what God has put in your path. We must view hindrances as part of God's plan and a part of the sacrifice. Listen, He may be calling us to make. Oftentimes, God prevents us from doing something or going somewhere. We may not understand it at the time, but must trust that it is for our good and it is for God's glory. You see, the ministry mindset sees an obstacle as an opportunity. Listen, shipwrecked, that's fine. I'll preach the gospel to the people on the shores when we get ashore. Throw me in jail? That's fine. I'll preach the gospel to the prison, all the other prison inmates and to the prison guards. Beat me? That's fine. I'll use an opportunity to praise God and let people know that my hope is not in this life. It's not even in in, in life here and now. Uh, I have resurrected life in Jesus. You take my life, it doesn't matter. I'm going to the best place you can possibly imagine. That's a ministry mindset. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter where I am. doesn't matter what obstacles in my way. Whatever it is, God is providing me an opportunity for ministry in the gospel. Third and finally, the ministry mindset pushes me to strive in specific prayer. I think it's interesting that Paul, here at the end, he, he ends describing his plans for ministry with a petition for them to pray on his behalf. And in verse 30 he says this, I appeal to you brothers by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. There's this this call from the heart of Paul to pray. In other words, you want to know why Paul does this? He understands that this is not going to go necessarily the way he he wants. He understands that this ministry can only be accomplished by a power that's greater than him. He is in desperate need of the, the Spirit of God to work in mighty ways in order for Him to accomplish any of these plans that He has set out to do. I want to just draw out, as we close our time together, three principles to help us in our prayers, to to strive in specific prayer. First, I want to ask three questions and, and kind of pull them from this text. First, why do we pray? Why do we pray? I want you to notice that Paul uses the term appeal here, or beg, or urge. It's the same word, actually, that he's used all the way back in chapter 12, verse 1, when he says this, that I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, right? This urging, this appealing, there's necessity, there's urgency involved in this. Just as he has appealed to them to present themselves to God as a living sacrifice, he now appeals, he he begs them, he urges them to pray earnestly for him and for his ministry. But he appeals here on the basis of two realities that I think are incredible motivators for our prayer, and they they really tell us why we pray. First, notice that he, he calls us to pray by our Lord Jesus Christ, You see, Paul is reminding them of who Christ is. He is Lord. He is the one who possesses all power and all authority in heaven and on earth. He rules the universe for the good of his church and the glory of his name. In other words, we pray because we are accessing the one who is able to do all things. This is so important because of verse 31. Paul knows that his enemies are powerful. He knows he's coming up against opposition. His circumstances are challenging. But notice this, secondly, his appeal is based on the love of the Spirit. He's reminding them of the, the love of God that has been poured into their hearts. This is a reference all the way back to Romans chapter 5. And this is important for Paul's second request in verse 31. You see what he says there? He knows that he's gonna have enemies come up against him, but that his service for the Jerusalem for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. He desperately, you know what he's saying? He's like, I need the Spirit of God to work powerfully to soften the hearts of the Jewish believers there in Jerusalem. I can't do this. I can't change their heart, but you know who can change the heart of man? God can. So pray. Pray. Pray that God changes their hearts. How encouraging is this for us? Listen, I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know the people in your life that you've, you've wanted to see come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I know this. I know you've probably tried everything in your power to change your circumstances or change a person's heart only to no avail. But you want to know who can change that situation? You want to know who can change that heart? God can. God can calls you to depend upon his power and his might. And the way you do that is to pray and pray and pray and persist in prayer day after day. Uh, So easy to give up, to give up on prayer. Paul, I love this, he expects the Holy Spirit to work powerfully and lovingly in the lives of these believers so that they will receive him. And you know what? They do. God answers this prayer. He answers the prayer for protection as well. That's why we pray. Because God's Son rules and God's Spirit loves and the Father is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. Secondly, how do we pray? How do we pray? Well, Paul tells us here, He appeals to them to strive together in prayer, and this word implies a struggle, a grappling, a wrestling. You say, why would Paul use this word? Because it reminds us that prayer is hard work. It reminds us we're in a spiritual battle, and the spiritual battle is a fight. One of the reasons why we see no victory in the spiritual life is because we refuse to pray, We're so confident in our own strength and our own ability, and we think that we can outwit, outsmart, and outlast Satan and his schemes, but we can't. And so we pray. And I just I want you to notice this word reminds us that it's going to be costly. That this kind of prayer does not come easily. In fact, I think prayer is one of the easiest disciplines to neglect and one of the hardest disciplines to practice. For us, especially in our culture, in our our day and age, because we have trained our, our minds to be stimulated constantly. We, we we have to be entertained. We have to be stimulated. We we don't know how to sit still and simply sit in quietness. I mean, for us, the moment it's quiet in your life, think about it, for the moment for most of us, the moment it gets really, really quiet, it gets very uncomfortable. see how uncomfortable you just got? So like, uh just check my email. Uh this is what we do we 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 can't sit in solitude and silence we can't just simply pause and meditate and reflect and think we can't we can't pause and pray because we've trained ourselves to always be active always be busy always be doing always be looking always be surfing always be reading something else or watching something else On top of that, there are a host of things that keep us from prayer, the cares of this world, the schemes of the devil, the lusts of the flesh. Listen to this, listen, striving arises from a burden, okay? Striving arises from a burden. That's why your prayer life increases when a crisis hits your life. Do you realize that? The moment you get that call, the moment you hear about that person The moment something goes wrong, what are you inclined to do? Get on your knees and plead for God to change the situation. Why? Because striving in prayer arises from a burden. Here's the burden that we need, church. We need the burden that there is a world around us that is lost and dead in their trespasses and sin. And when they die, they're going to spend eternity in hell paying for their sins. Because nobody ever told them about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that can save them from their sins and restore them to a relationship with God and change their life forever. We need that burden. We need to feel the weight of it. We need to let it drive us to our knees to pray for the world around us, to pray for our neighbors, to pray for our kids, to pray for our coworkers, to pray, pray, pray that God would save sinners, and to pray, listen, that God would use us in the process of saving them. All human effort, one author says, lies prostrate before the throne of God's providence. God can accomplish more in one minute of prayer than we can in one year of our effort. How do we pray? We strive. Lastly, what do we pray? What do we pray? Paul has plans, but he he knows God's will must be done. Did you catch that? He says in verse 32, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. And this teaches us how to pray. I think we we learn from Paul that specifics in prayer are important. He's not afraid to ask for very specific things. And I wonder if we see few answers to prayer because we pray so generally. We aren't asking for anything really specific because we aren't thinking deeply or carefully about what God wants to do and wants us to do. Paul had gospel dreams and ambitions. He wanted to go places. He wanted to go to Spain. He wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to preach the gospel. He wanted to bless people and refresh them with the good news of Jesus Christ. He had gospel ambition, but ambitions precede actions what is it that you want God to do in you? Let me ask you that. What's your spiritual ambition for your spiritual life, for your spiritual health, for your spiritual growth? What is it that you want God to do for you spiritually? What is it that you want God to do through you spiritually? There's right gospel ambition that we must all have, but listen, every plan, all our ambitions must ultimately be surrendered to God in prayer. We must be willing to say, like Jesus and like Paul, not my will be done but yours. Paul prays that his plans will come to fruition, but he knows, listen, he knows that God's will must be done, and much of God's will is clear, right? Right here. It's very, very clear. Listen, but much of God's will is not clear. It's, it's left up to the mystery of providence that we don't see in the moment. We see only as we look back at the, the events of our lives. And most of that even is, is veiled to us. And, and we'll only see one day when we stand from the vantage point of heaven and we see what God sees and we understand all of the moving parts that God was working and weaving together to accomplish his good and perfect will. We pray. We pray with faith, believing that He knows best and that He is working all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. But this is the ministry mindset. We strive in specific prayer. We expect that God will answer according to His will and that God in the end will get all the glory. Paul concludes his prayer with these words in verse 33, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. He's the God of peace. He holds the universe in the palm of His hands. He directs all things according to the counsel of His will. He is the God of peace because He is the God of salvation. He is the God of peace because He has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place, to rescue us from our sin, to pay the price for our sin. He's the God of peace because He alone atoned for our sin. He became our perfect substitute. He's the God of peace because He gave us perfect righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that that now allows us to have access into the very presence of God, not just right now spiritually, but one day physically for all of eternity. Peace comes only through the rescuing and redeeming work of Jesus Christ. In Christ the sinful failings of our best actions aren't rejected by an angry judge but accepted by a loving Father. In Christ we draw near to God with comfort and confidence.